0: I'm both thrilled and honored uh, to welcome Elaine Jones, um, the President and Director-Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, as our almost speaker here today, and to open the Symposium on Rekindling the Spirit of Brown v. Board of Education. When we were first planning the Symposium, we knew that it was Elaine Jones' voice that we wanted and needed to hear first. And that's in part because of all that she's achieved um, as one of the nation's most prominent civil rights lawyers and leader of both the old and the new civil rights movements. But what makes Ms. Jones so special is not just her accomplishments but the strength of her character she is an extraordinary human being whose courage dedication passion for social justice intellect and vision is an example to all of us we read with admiration that she was the first female african-american graduate of the university of virginia law school but we need to stop and think about what that really means. Yes, it's an enormous accomplishment, but what did she have to go through to not only be the first graduate, but remember to be the first attendee, to be the first and only woman of color at the University of Virginia Law School at a time when it was state policy to pay students to receive their education out of the state. How hard that must have been. How tough she had to be, to be in that position. And then a mere two years after she graduated from the University of Virginia Law School to be counsel of record in the landmark case of Furman versus Georgia that I'm sure all the students here have read that abolished the death penalty in most of our states for over a decade. She was counsel of record on that case amid threats from the Ku Klux Klan. So to do that, two years after she graduated from law school, took not only exceptional intellect, it also took extraordinary courage. She channeled that courage and determination and intellect into a professional life at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, first as a staff attorney and more recently as its leader. She did that after turning down very tempting offers from major law firms that would have made her rich and famous. That shows a true passion for social justice. And we see her vision in what she did and what she has done at the fund, to constantly be broadening the mission of the fund so that it evolves as the times evolve, to always be adapting, to always be looking over the hill to the next challenge so as the judiciary became more conservative she became a legislative advocate in addition to a litigator and she was instrumental in the passage of all of the major federal civil rights acts in the 80s and the early 90s last one being 1991 Um, haven't been any really since that time Um, and as the legislative arena Uh, became more and more hostile. She realized that she again had to broaden the mission of the fund to include economic empowerment, environmental justice, health care issues, and other issues that go beyond litigation and legislative advocacy. And then there's her political savvy. What other national civil rights leader, with everything on her plate, would have pursued and won the first African-American seat on the board of governors of the ABA. Can you imagine the magic that she did there and the hearts and minds that she changed uh, in that august institution? (laughs) She's laughing. Um, And the same way that when she joined a federal administration, she did it under a Republican president in the department of transportation can you imagine the effect she had there last i want to talk about one other aspect of her character that she and i have talked about and that is her unfailing optimism her capacity for hope her sense of humor uh, in the midst of despair she and i are contemporaries so Brown versus Board of Education came down when we were both in elementary school, and we remember vividly when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. And from our perspective in those days, both black and white, we just anticipated that we would see rapid and continuous progress, and that in our lifetimes there would be true racial equality in this country. Little did we anticipate that now, all these years later, we would be fighting the same battles, and that in the 21st century, many of our schools would be even more segregated than they were before Brown versus Board of Education. Can you imagine how Ms. Jones must have felt as she was writing the foreword in 1997 to the book on Dismantling Desegregation, The Quiet Reversal of Brown versus Board of Education? Anyone else would have despaired, become embittered, become pessimistic, not Elaine Jones. Even today, and you'll see it as she gets up here, um, she is so hopeful. Um, She's looking for the next challenge. She's so invigorating. And I think that you will see um, why we decided months and months ago that she had to be the very, very first speaker uh, that you would hear at this symposium and set the tone um, for this entire event on rekindling the spirit of Brown versus Board of Education, a call to action. Elaine Jones.
1: Oh, Mary Louise makes me sound so noble and so accomplished, and you know, um, I I don't see myself as either of those things, and and we'll talk about the University of Virginia, how I fell into that and got stuck. But looking on a different level, I do really appreciate um, uh, the opportunity to, to be here. I appreciate that generous introduction from Mary Louise, and once we start believing our own press, then we're in real trouble, and so I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, It's also – Dean, it's a pleasure to meet you – it's also good to see so many of you in the audience, old friends and new, and I – how many are getting – are you getting class credit for this, or is this purely voluntary action? I mean, i um, rather think that, no, you were here because it's the um, uh, class credit has nothing to do with it, and you were here because you want to see if this lady has anything to say. Now, I look at this topic of the conference, rekindling the spirit of Brown versus Board of Education. Rekindling means that something has died, or something needs uh, a a fire or a match lit to it. I mean, that the flame has ebbed. And so uh, I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not the case because we are coming off a big time victory in the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, And I'm going to tell you how big it is, because not only that, look what you've done to Prop 54. You have buried it. You have buried it. I mean, and it's not as if we don't learn lessons from these occasional defeats that we get. I mean, you know, Prop 209 was a wake-up call. You know, and had the strategy been a little different, I think we could have turned that one around as well. But, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We don't go that way again. And it was a very sophisticated strategy. Not a whole lot about race and, I mean, you know, you're talking about issues that impact a larger community, you know, health issues. And how do we, you know, uh, have the medical research done so we can determine. You know, who suffers from what kind of illnesses and what kind of research we need to do. I mean, arguments that appeal to a larger population. Now, that is a challenge for us, especially as we deal with issues dealing with race and ethnicity. It's a tough challenge, but it's one we have to meet if we're going to move anywhere. Now, Someone came up to me after the Supreme Court argument in Michigan, and they said, Oh, Elaine, what luck that it was Michigan. The Supreme Court could have heard some other case. And I said, luck? Luck? No, 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 you're missing some very important information. We In the community, the larger community who care about these issues, have known for at least seven or eight years that the Supreme Court was going to take a case having to do with affirmative action. We didn't know whether it was going to be in the context of employment or whether it was going to be scholarships or whether it was going to be higher education, but we knew Bakke today is 25 years old. And we know what we faced throughout the '80s, and you had a very vigorous justice department turning the, trying to turn the clock back and have been doing it for the past twenty years and so it was inevitable that a case was going to go to the Supreme Court of the United States, and we just didn't know the context. Well, what does that mean? It means you don't just sit and wait for it to happen. you don't just Say, you know, all right, the court's going to take one, and when it, if it takes one, and, and if it's not one that we brought, you know, we'll have to file the amicus or try to affect the outcome. No. You get in there early, and you want to it's just as Thurgood and the council in Brown, it's the same strategy they employed. That was a strategy. These victories are not accidents. All right, the strategy on Michigan. Hopwood was the first case, remember? And when Hopwood was decided in 1996, the University of Texas case, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just simply overruled the Supreme Court in Bakke. Now, I didn't know the Court of Appeals could do that, but that's, that's the position that they took. You know, race is, is, is impossible. Virtually impossible for a race to be uh, 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 compelling, that, you, that, that, that it, could, it could meet the test under the 14th Amendment, uh, and that you would just never, uh, race could never be a compelling interest. And so it just, it, it, so the University of Texas, no, this program is unconstitutional, the 14th Amendment. Court discussed at length. Baki, Justice Powell's opinion, even called it a lonely opinion. I like that. Lonely opinion, the, the Fifth Circuit wrote. Judge Jerry Smith, whoever that is, I have to go back and look, at, look him up. And he, he went on, you know, and the dissent, Judge Wiener in the dissent was quite interesting. The dissent said, well, you know, I, I wouldn't just go as far as this. You know, you've just, you've just, you've taken this issue too far. The question is not whether race can ever meet the compelling interest test, but whether in this case, on these facts, uh, uh, this is a narrowly tailored program. balanced, reasonable, you know. In other words, don't try to overrule the Supreme Court. Well, the circuit wasn't listening, and that's what happened. So now, we're in trouble in Hopwood, because when you get these cases, When a public university is sued, who is supposed to defend it? The Attorney General. That's right. The Attorney General of the state. (laughs) Attorney General of the state is supposed to defend the university unless the university costs up the money and gets its own counsel and does its own thing. Well, that's what happened in Hopwood, University of Texas, Attorney General, Dan Morales, right? Press conferences, litigation by press conference, press conferences, you know, uh, uh, um, about, I don't think that was a strategy, but about how difficult the case was and, and uh, you know, how he would do the best he could and blah, blah. Meanwhile, fighting, we tried to intervene in Texas to represent the interests of the students of color, oppose our intervention, you can't come in. You know, and uh, so we had to, you know, fight and work with moral and try to get in the best we could and affect some things. Fought us tooth and nail. All right, now, the case goes out to the Supreme Court of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very nervous. Supreme Court of the United States on Hopwood. You know, you get a, you get a case in the Supreme Court on, uh, with no trial or summary judgment on an issue like this, you got real problems. Without a fully developed record, you, you're just asking for trouble. And so here we were, on the way to the Supreme Court, and many were saying, in the larger community, the academic community, the legal community, our friends in the education community, social science community, well, we want the court to take the case and put this issue to rest once and for all. And I was saying, no, please, no. No, not this case. And so when Justice Ginsburg wrote, she wrote, when they dis- denied search, she wrote, we review judgments, not opinions, not decisions. We review judgments. In other words, the program had changed between the time it got from the circuit up to the Court of Appeals, so there was nothing to review. Now, I didn't want to get emotional about it. I didn't want to rush the court and kiss her right away. I just, I calmed down and, you know, and said, well, so, deny. Next case, coming up. And this case had been percolating around for a while. Piscataway, case out of New Jersey. Employment context, white teacher, black teacher. situation in which there was a layoff. Wygant had already spoken to layoffs. I don't know what people are reading when they decide to lay all of this on affirmative action. But the Supreme Court had already spoken about the question of layoffs and said, no, no. No, you don't use race in the layoff context. All right. So here is the white teacher, the black teacher, the layoff situation. The white teacher laid off. And the black teacher kept, with this stipulated reason, stipulated in the record, kept because she was black. Thank you very much, lawyers. Thank you. Stipulated, kept her because she was black. You look at that, later, within a few months, the white teacher was rehired. Now we've got the issue. It goes up. Uh, district Court, you know, rules against. Uh, the, unit, the lawsuit was brought, you know, because impermissible use of race. Uh, the, the, the Piscataway School District loses. It goes up to the Third Circuit. They lose in the Third Circuit. I wake up one morning and see that the Supreme Court has granted cert in the Piscataway case. Now Piscataway had a tortured history. I didn't even know what to do with Piscataway. If I were a judge on somebody's court somewhere, you brought me to Piscataway. I I would have had real trouble trying to decide Piscataway in favor of the school district on that record, which was nonexistent. Plus the stipulations of counsel. But little details are missing. The African-American teacher had a master's. The white teacher did not. Not in the record, of course. Stipulated she's kept because of her race. You know, the, the facts make a case. And it, you look at that and you saw we were, that case was on its way to defeat. If Miss Galloway had gone to the Supreme Court of the United States, What would have happened is it would have been a loss. Yes, it would have been a loss. No, I don't have to waffle, don't have to find a gray area, maybe lane, maybe not. No, it would have been a loss. And being a loss in this context, I doubt that we would have seen a Michigan. I woke up 4 o'clock one morning and looked around the room and said out loud, Supreme Court had granted cert in the case. I said, you know, Supreme Court's not going to hear this case. One person can make a difference, folks. One person, if you care enough. And we have resources at our fingertips that we don't even know we have. But first, we have to have the will to act. And I just said, I don't know how. It's not been done before. Here the court has granted cert and set it for argument. Cert's granted. Set it for argument, and I'm saying that the court's not going to hear it. The court didn't hear it. And had to figure out how. First, you look at the case. You see, the only thing in the case is money. It's not about any injunctive relief or any systemic relief. It's money. The, The teacher was laid off for a few weeks, and she was brought back. So she's owed back pay, and that's counsel fees in that case. But that's it. Now, how do you, yet, you could have a legal rule from the Supreme Court that could wipe out the whole notion of diversity for years to come? So the question is, what do you do? And I I thought of first, you go to the lawyers. You go to the lawyers, you say, look, fellas, on this record, you know, this is a loss, and it's going to do serious damage across the country business, the military, employment, education, all with this. And so what difference can you, what, 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 what can we do about this? And now when lawyers get the opportunity to, to argue, in the Supreme Court of the United States, you have an uphill battle. Win or lose, they want to be heard in the high court. I mean, the lawyer for the, for the uh, district school district told me, no, this was very important, and um, you know, he thought, he thought it should go forward. The lawyer for the uh, white teacher, uh, I, I went to him, and he said, well, you know, I hear all of this, but I bought a $2,500 suit, <laughs> I'm telling you. I bought a $2,500 suit, and I'm going to be heard. It, it sounds on his face ridiculous, but, but, but important issues turn on these little personal piccadillos such as this, I've got a $2,500 suit. So we had to find a way, first, to find out what the case was worth. What is it worth? You know, what, what is her back pay worth? What accounts counsel be? What, what do the lawyers have in terms of time in the case? Figure that out. And then somebody is found who is a good Samaritan, or two or three, who will come together, who will come up with those dollars and get the lawyers to agree. Now, what else gets them to agree? You have to when we are involved in these issues that, that impact on, on, on social justice in ways that um, you know, are incalculable. We, we, are, we have issues that we cannot lose. We cannot lose. And to be in that situation, you really have to be willing to do what it takes to get lawyers to come to the table. It's a coalition effort. LDF cannot go off and do what it wants in this kind of litigation. Neither can the ACLU or MALDEF or any other litigator, you have to consult if you really are litigating in the public interest. We don't have time for Rambo tactics, too much is at stake. And so that's what we had operating uh, in the way case. And finally I had to find out, you know, you had to, you had to, to get the attention of the lawyer. You know, he, he had to understand that it was in his long-term economic interest that he come to the table and sell this case. And so he understood it, the case was settled. And then it was headlines, New York Times, Washington Post, Piscataway settles. Well, the case settled, yes. But then they wanted us to come on the media, come on Nightline and talk about selling the case. Details are important. The Supreme Court hadn't yet dismissed the writ. The case had settled, but the court has to determine what happens? Can you see me on nightline? <laughs> Would the Supreme Court still have jurisdiction over the case talking about how we got the case settled? No. I kept my mouth shut. Kwesi Fumi from the NAACP went on nightline, and since he really didn't know what was going on, it didn't make, it, it didn't make it have anything to do with it. Because LDF and NAACP are separate. We're a completely separate organization. And he wanted the press so you know, he could go ahead and go, and it didn't affect anything we were doing. All right, now, that's from Scatterway, out of the way. Now, here we come, University of Georgia. On its way to the Supreme Court of the United States, everybody wants to get the affirmative action case, Center for Individual Rights files a lawsuit against the University of Georgia. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if ever there's been discrimination at an institution of higher education, it's at the University of Georgia. I mean, you can, you, you can just read, cursory reading which just show you of Georgia's deep racial history in, high, in public high education. But records don't make themselves. Lawyers have to develop it. You have to get your experts and your social scientists and your demographers and, 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 and develop your record. Well, in Georgia we had a situation where the Attorney General was responsible for defending the University of Georgia. (laughs) Attorney General had decided that he wanted to be governor one day. And to be governor one day did not mean vigorously defending an affirmative action case at the University of Georgia. I mean, these cases don't get you votes. And so here we are arguing with him, trying to intervene on behalf of the black and brown students who enrolled at the university. He's fighting us all of the way. Not the evidence that he would not develop. The evidence on remediation. Not the diversity rationale which the court went on in Michigan. But the
0: remediation
1: rationale. The university will make the diversity argument. That's their First Amendment argument, you know, to have a student body. You know, that's the university's right. LDF is in there pushing the remediation argument, which is the right of the student the right of a student to be included. And when we're in the case, it pushes the court closer to a diversity position because they don't want to come over here where we are. So we got in, in, in the case, but the state didn't work with us to help us They objected to everything we tried to put in as we were trying to develop the evidentiary work record. That case was lost in the district court. Went up to the Court of Appeals, guess what? Lost the game. Then the Attorney General announces, because it's good press, that he's going to go to the Supreme Court of the United States to defend the rights of these African American students and uh, Latino students and the University of Georgia. Looks good, good press. The fact that you haven't developed record in court below, nobody's paying attention to that. But you are going to save us now in the Supreme Court of the United States. Press conference, of course. So this was 9-11. Three of us, I got on the plane with the associate director of counsel of the Legal Defense Fund and the head of my education section, of LDF. Big jumbo jet out of LaGuardia. We got the 911 flying to Atlanta. Big empty plane with six people on it. And so we told the people, well, look, you can at least let us fly first class. You know, we, we, go. we, go, we go to Atlanta, meet with the attorney general. Now, he's, a little, he's somewhat impressed by this. He's somewhat impressed. But my point to him is, let's talk over here. I said, we've been in case this case with you for a couple of years now. And I haven't gone public. You want to be governor one day. I don't see how you become governor without your base. First African-American attorney general. How how does one become governor when the op-eds are written and the speeches are made and the people really understand what's going on? And he heard me. And the next week, he got on a jumbo jet and came to New York. We became new best friends. And we were able to work out a settlement with the University of Georgia. He did not seek cert in a review by the Supreme Court of the United States, and we were able to sell the affirmative action plan. We had been in the Michigan case all along. In Michigan, Michigan was doing all that a university can be asked to do. They were doing all and more. The president of the University of Michigan Uh, who was dean of the law school at the time the the lawsuit was filed. He later became president of the University of Michigan. Now he's president of Columbia. The uh, dean of the law school who succeeded Bollinger, uh, Jeff Lehman, has now become the president of Cornell. And Marvin Prinsloff, the general counsel of the university, I mean, there was university-wide support for the defense of that case. Now, they had some problems. You know, university has a lot of pressures on it. Uh, Especially a public university, you've got a board of trustees. The the law school was sued, as well as the undergraduate uh, school, college was sued. And so there were, you know, on campus there were debates, and there was a lot of turmoil about this case within Michigan. Eventually, Michigan, because the leadership stayed on point, The leadership stayed on point and understood that what they were doing was momentous and yet paying through the nose to have it done. That money came out of Michigan's pocket. So they stayed with the case. LDF intervened in the case, in the undergraduate case. We could not intervene in the law school case because my deputy had been on the faculty at the University of Michigan when the program, the Law School Affirmative Action Program was adopted. And so we had a lawyer witness problem in that sense and he could not he could not be a part of it. But we stayed with the case throughout. Now, the day of lawyers going to court with briefcases, coming up with a novel league of theory, and going to change the world, if there ever was a day such as that, and I don't know that there ever was, that day is over. Because these issues are campaigns, they are campaigns. You know, the Brown and Brown was a campaign. You know, and when you are engaged in a campaign, I mean, it takes you have to use your political power, you have to use the media, you have to use all of the intellectual force and power at your disposal. You know, you have to be organized, you have to know what your goals are, you have to be clear about your mission. You have to have the resources, because we've been fighting against a campaign that has been organized since the early 1980s. Now, it means pooling resources. It means deciding what the strategy is and understanding that it's, it's your grassroots, your grass tops. is all of the people engaged in the community. Michigan would not have been one just with lawyers going to court. This engagement of the students all over this country made a difference. The engagement of the press, people writing the op-eds, you know, the meetings with, with the editorial boards and others. I mean, it was a massive public, political, legal, and social campaign. That's how you can win these victories. Now, what are we faced with now? Brown, we know what Brown did. We know that Brown really was the five cases. You know, what helped me was Virginia, Kansas, South Carolina, then D.C. and Delaware. It's no accident that it was those five. It's no accident about that. Small staff in New York, Connie Motley and Thurgood Marshall, you know, and and you had Lou Pollock, who's on the Southern District of New York, who was one of the Brown Council. Jack Weinstein, Eastern District of New York, one of the Brown Council. Bill Coleman, living in Washington, D.C., one of the Brown Council. Oliver Hill, Thurgood Marshall's law clerk, law law partner, not law partner, graduate. They graduated together in class of 1933 from Howard Law School. Oliver is 96 years old. I talk to him every week. One in the Brown Council. You know, and they reached out. They were creative in their thinking. Bob Carter, Southern District of New York. Bob now is about 85. Bob Carter, who was Thurgood's assistant, who litigated up and down this country throughout the 40s and the 50s on these education cases. And then when they tried to take the list of the NAACP to see who the membership were Bob did all that as assistant. Jack Greenberg. Jack Greenberg came to the Legal Defense Fund in 1949, was at the Legal Defense Fund, and when Thurgood left in 1961 to go on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Jack Greenberg succeeded Thurgood as director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. Constance Baker Motley, serving on the Southern District of New York. Judge Motley has about 82, the first woman. You know, an organization that has been able to do the things we do. Why? Because one of the things is we practice what we preach. We argue and promote diversity, but we believe in it. It's reflected on our staff. I couldn't dream of having a legal team with everybody looking like me. I need Asian American lawyers, Latina lawyers, white lawyers. I need both genders. I need everybody at the table because we do handling these jury trials, arguing before these judges. You have to know how people think and you have to talk it through. It's a poor law firm today that doesn't have the diversity it needs to really, really compete. Now, that's not only with the staff, it's with our board. The Legal Defense Fund, Legal Defense Fund came into existence in 1940. Don't tell anybody you heard from that nice lady at the NAACP. I'm the Legal, Legal Defense Fund. We're separate. NAACP came into existence in 1909. LDF was born out of the legal uh, NAACP in 1940 because the lawyers got separately incorporated. The lawyers could get tax-exempt status. The NAACP could not. Business reasons, you know, you understand. And we could get tax-exempt status, and we were the first organization in law firm to, get, to, to, to be a non-profit law firm. The courts of New York thought it was an oxymoron. They couldn't understand the concept. Lawyers working for nothing. They couldn't, couldn't get that. <laughs> But we were represented by Paul Weiss, Bill DeWin, who will be 90, 90 years old, the 1st of December, was our counsel. And stayed with us for over a year, for over a year, to make sure uh, we were able uh, to get become incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit law firm. Now, it's also reflected strategically, because strategy means everything in our clients. Yes, our issues are racial and ethnic inclusion. One of our big issues now is this runaway uh, incarceration system we have here. That's, that's just, just, just it's beyond anything we've ever known and something we created on our watch. A lot of these issues, we can, we can say, well, our grandparents or great-grandparents did that. We had nothing to do with it. We had a lot to do with this prison system, which started in the mid-'80s started reading with the Rockefeller drug laws, and then when, the, when Congress got in the act in the mid-'80s, when Lynn Bias died and, and the crack powder cocaine and all of that, it just went through the roof. So now we've got 2 million folk incarcerated. We're, we're ruining budgets, absolutely ruining budgets. The money is coming out of the budgets for higher education going into the prison system. And so that's a major issue for the Legal Defense Fund. But as you look at these issues and, and what we're called upon to do, when I talk about diversity of clients, it's not the race of the client. And although I tell you, most of our clients you know, are, are black and brown, and in some instances Asian. But most, some of our clients have been white. Why? Because it is the issue that that client raises. We had a case, it's in the Supreme Court, Supreme Court decision, McKinney versus Nashville Banner. Sometime in the 90s, I don't remember the year. McKinnon versus Nashville, Ms. McKinney, white female, 60 year old, working for a corporation in Tennessee. She thought she was about to be fired, and unjustly so, and she wanted to assert her rights under the Age Discrimination Act. To protect herself, Ms. McKinnon took home some documents from the corporation to prove that they would have been acting unlawfully. She brought home the documents, and during the course of her deposition, it was learned that she had taken the documents, and that is an automatically dismissible offense from the corporation. So the corporation argued to the district court, look, we did discriminate, but even if we did, that discrimination was negated by the fact that she took home the documents. And so the court created a new rule called the After Acquired Evidence Rule. So under the after-acquired evidence rule created by the district court to get cases off the docket, under the after-acquired evidence rule, Ms. McKinnon is out of court. Goes up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals reaffirms the district court and says she's out. Her lawyer comes to the legal defense fund. And he said, look, I, I really need some help with this case. We want to go to the Supreme Court. We want LDF to help us write a cert petition and get involved in the case. Now, we have a limited budget, $14 million a year. That's it. Got the whole country, $14 million a year. All right, so that means our case selection has to be very, very careful. Thurgood had those same problems. Have so to be very careful about case selection. Now, we, I looked at that. I said, now, why should we help Ms. McKenna? First, age discrimination. Although the race and ethnicity statutes are different and are treated differently, I call these statutes sister statutes. The age discrimination statutes, the disability statute, race, and ethnicity, and gender statutes. I call them sister statutes. I care about what happens to either one of those statutes because it can come back to affect me. So I need to be very, very careful about what goes on. So I said, all right, this is is something to look at and to look at very closely. Next, age. I said, well, if we were coming up in the context of race or gender, the court may have a few problems understanding what we're talking about. But age? Supreme Court ought to understand this issue. (laughs) They ought to. This is whether or not she prevails. It's whether or not she gets her day in court. You know whether she can survive a summary judgment and get to put on her case. That's what we're talking about here. And so then I, I, I looked at it, I looked at it, and I said, you know, it may be better in the high court to have this issue arise in this context because if I let it seep into the law in this statute, I'm going to see it in a race or gender or ethnicity, or disability stature. I'm going to see this procedural rule used to wipe out civil rights claims. And so we took the case under stipulation of, of agreement with the lawyer. We said, look, we'll take the case. We will bring you to New York. We will moot you, give you your moot court, and see that you're ready to argue the case. We will write the cert petition to get the court to grant cert. We don't know that they will. We'll do the best we can. But, if we don't think you are able to argue this case, we want you to agree now that you will let another lawyer argue. And that is the condition upon which we'll take it. And that's testing whether that he really cares about his clients winning. And so he said yes. He said yes. Came up to New York, mooted him, we wrote the cert petition Supreme Court granted cert. Went in. Did an extra? he argued a case, second shared by one of the LDF lawyers, came back. We won that case non zip. Non zip? That's the end of the after quiet evidence rule. <laughs> but, but all I am saying is in all of these cases, we have to employ, especially in the 21st century, what we didn't have to employ as much of. Uh, in the mid middle of the 20th century, and that is coalition, and that is uh, um, the kind of of lawyering that involves your your colleagues and the kinds of discussions that you have to have to sustain because you're in these cases for victory. You know, I looked at the census, and it shows you we have come a long way. Latinas weren't even counted in the census. Now you know what Latinas existed prior to 1980. <laughs> you know that. I mean, I mean, we know that. I'm sure that's evidence of that. <laughs> no, according to the census, I look at the nineteen thirty census, the nineteen forty census, the nineteen fifty census, sixty census, seventy six, NA. under a Latina, NA, nineteen eighty census, then I see a six point four percent. And then in 1990, I see a 9.0, and then in 2000, I see 12.5. Now, you know, well, we can say, you know, at least, I mean, there's progress there. It's, 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 uh, it's de minimis, because I, sometimes I don't know whether it's a good idea to be counted or not. But, but now, now, at least, the nation recognizes that all of us are here, which is a start. But... As we, in terms of this call for action, as we look at Brown versus Board of Education, and we see where the country has gone, the Supreme Court stuck with Brown in 1954 and Brown, too, in 1955, you know, procuring opinions, you know, throughout the uh, 50s, you know, and the 60s. Supreme Court, you know, really reaffirmed and ringing voice and in Cooper versus Aaron, and then in, in uh, Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg, and I mean, up until 1972, the Supreme Court stayed the course. But what happened then was what usually happens in the cases involving social justice: politics becomes involved, and the Nixon administration was not happy, was not happy with school desegregation and busing as a remedy. And you can see it throughout the Justice Department, throughout the actions of ATW. Just read the history and you can see it. Well, then we, after we we see the court beginning to tire, we look at San Antonio School District versus Rodriguez, a very important case, 1973, filed out of Texas, opinion by Justice Powell, we all know it. That attacked the Texas system of financing public education initiated by Mexican American parents whose children attended the Edgewood Independent School District. Complaint filed in some of 68, three judge court in 69, went straight to the Supreme Court. The Pound rendered its decision in 71 and argued in October of 72 before the Supreme Court decided March of 73. Now it's <laughs> are amazed when we tell them across the country you know education is not a fundamental right it's not a fundamental right that's that's articulated and as forcefully and clearly stated in the Constitution of the United States if you haven't a doubt about that go back and read Brown know where that's made clear and also read Rodriguez Rodriguez says very clearly, he said, Justin Powell said, um, and he's, first he cites Brown and says, in Brown, a unanimous court recognized that education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. What was said there in the context of racial discrimination has lost none of its vitality with the passage of time. We are very good with lofty saying." Quote from Brown, Compulsory school attendance laws and the great expenditures for education both demonstrate uh, and, and, and recognize the importance of education to our democratic society. It is required in the performance of our most basic public responsibilities, even service in the armed forces. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. This is language right out of Brown. Today, it is a principled instrument in awakening the child to cultural values, in preparing him or her, my amendment, for later professional training, and in helping him or her to adjust normally to his or her environment. In these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. Such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. Now, that's the Supreme Court in Brown. Now, the Supreme Court in Rodriguez, the Supreme Court said on this question, education, of course, is not among the rights afforded explicit protection under our federal constitution, nor do we find any basis for saying it is implicitly so protected. As we have said, the undisputed importance of education will not alone cause this court to depart from the usual standard for reviewing a state's social and economic legislation. In other words, we've been scrambling, as you are in California, looking at these state constitutions, trying to find some remedies under state law to get some equal education opportunity to these students of color locked into these school districts. LDF looked at all and read every state constitution in the country and looked for the one with the most favorable provision some years ago and it was Connecticut. So we filed a lawsuit in Connecticut to protect the children of Hartford under the state constitution to get those kids equal, some equal quality education. Uh, After 12 years of negotiating, we ended up with a settlement last year which is not a bad sum, and requires Hartman four years to uh, make sure that at least uh, 40% of its students are in a desegregated environment and that there's really a uh, uh, considerable change that one can see within the next four years. But leaves it up to legislatures. In the end, when you file these lawsuits eventually um, under state constitutions and trying to get resources in those school districts, you're going to end up. Uh, in the state Supreme Court and with the state legislatures. And prying one in this e- economic environment out of those legislatures is not an easy thing to do. But these are the challenges. What remains after the Supreme Court decision on in, 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 in uh, Michigan? Well, Michigan, as I said, is a good win, but you know, some will argue that it does not affect scholarships, it affects education, higher education, the right of the university. First Amendment rights of the university, but it does not not impact, let's say, race-based scholarships, many will argue. Now, if we eventually end up with a system that we eliminate scholarships for high-achieving black and brown students on the 14th Amendment equal protection basis, then the scholarships I'm about to name will be good scholarships. Scholarship for students of the Roman Catholic faith. Scholarship for descendants of early Dutch settlers. Scholarship for students, American citizens, Canadian descent. Scholarship for students of Greek descent for middle-income families. Scholarship for students born in Hong Kong. Scholarship for students from Taiwan. Scholarships for females who do not use tobacco. Scholarship for students of Chinese or Japanese descent. Scholarships for students of Huguenot ancestry, scholarships for deserving students of Italian descent from upstate New York, scholarships for students who are lineal descendants of the Confederate soldiers, and, and scholarships for descendants of silence signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, all of those would be fine if you come up with a rule that says the 14th Amendment prohibits race based scholarships. Just think about that. But that may be the next battle we have to fight. Uh, we already lost that one in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals some years ago, uh, back in 1993. But it's still uh, an important uh, issue. It is important to be engaged. It is important to make an assessment. Don't view the problem as being too big. Don't. All of these social issues are huge, but. Margaret Mead told us that it's thoughtful men and women who are committed, who make the difference. And I believe that. You know, uh, our 26th president, Teddy Roosevelt, to paraphrase Teddy, he said, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the one who points out how strong, how the strong man or woman stumble, or how the do of good deeds might have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or woman who is actually in the arena, who strives valiantly, who knows the great enthusiasms and the great devotions, and spends himself or herself in a worthy cause, so that his or her place should never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I ended up at the University of Virginia from the Peace Corps, two years in Turkey, and I applied to Virginia because Virginia had to rule, as many states did, especially in the South, if you were, quote, qualified to go to the institution of higher public school, institution of higher education, then the, the state could pay your way to a school of your choice. My classmate before me, who's now a tenured faculty member at Georgetown, applied to university a couple of years ahead of me, and the university paid her way to Harvard. So I applied from the Peace Corps. I said, well, I'm on my way to Harvard. I applied to the University of Virginia from Istanbul, Turkey, and they called my bluff. They admitted me. Virginia admitted me. And so now you have, you applied, and you admitted, now you have to go. You know, they have never seen anything like you before. It's very, you know, it's it's, it's the school this was all male. The undergraduate school all male. No women were admitted to had, were in Virginia when I was. I mean it was something. It was truly something. But I was prepared because I had spent two years in Turkey in the Peace Corps. So after Istanbul, Charlottesville was a piece of cake. Thank you all very, very much.